welcome to the Turtle Tracks Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Van Hooker, and I'm here with Freddie Williams II, the artist behind parts one, two, and three of DC Comics and IDW's uh, amazing Batman and TMNT crossover. How you doing today, Freddie? I'm doing great, Brian. Uh, thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for doing this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, there's so much stuff to cover in all three parts of those stories, but I guess I'll just start with uh, the beginning and see uh, what brought you into comics. Yes, I always was interested in, in comics. I think uh, like whenever I was really young, it was because they were just colorful and neat and stuff like that. But when I hit um, about 13 or 14, I saw uh, in a short period of time, uh, actually a little bit earlier than that, I saw the Ninja Turtles book four color reprint, you know, the ones where all of them had red bandanas. Um, oh, yeah. I had seen that at Walden Books back when Walden Books existed. And um uh, that was a book that I drew from. It has the uh, the story that's called What Goes Around Comes Around. That's uh, the Leonardo one-shot story where uh, he's like in the city and it introduces the return of the Shredder and he's like fighting through the city and then there's just all these Foot Clan members and they throw him in through the windows, kind of used as the basis, but they change it to Raph for the, the 1990 movie. Mm. Um, and that that book really got me interested in the Turtles. It was my first exposure to the Turtles even before I saw the cartoon. Um and uh, something that, that inspired me to want to draw, but when I, uh, more, to draw more, but when I got to be around 13 or 14, I decided to take it more seriously as an actual career. And that was, um, I saw Jim's, Jim Lee X-Men 272, uh, Wendy Penny's book three of ElfQuest, um, and also uh, met another artist in high school that was just, an amazing artist. He's a couple years older than me and, and uh, I learned a lot from him. So it was kind of a combination of all that stuff that got me into and interested in trying to pursue it as a career. Um, and then flash forward throughout a big chunk of time. But in 2005, I, I got picked up at the DC Comics talent search um, in San Diego of that year. Um, yeah. So that's how I actually got into the comics industry um, through a very, there's a long winding road to get to that point though. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so what did you do over at DC before, uh, for those who are of us who are sort of turtle centric, what did you do over there? I did, uh, my first, a couple assignments were I was the regular artist on Robin. Um, then I drew about a year of the flash and I drew some green arrow, uh, a book called the movement, which, um, sold basically nothing at the time, but has gotten a little bit more uh, attention recently because it deals with like, um, marginalized groups and minority groups and that sort of thing, uh, written by Gail Simone. And, um, then I also did, I, I did a whole bunch of stuff to be honest, but, um, yeah, JSA all-stars, um, a, a book called final crisis aftermath run, and then a whole bunch of stuff in between captain Adam. Um, and, uh, but it was actually my work. I did a couple covers for IDW. Um, or I did a couple pieces that were turtle centric. That was, uh, the cover for issue 24, uh, for the regular Ninja Turtles run. It was a variant um, a retailer's incentive. And that was the first work I did for IDW. And then around that same time, I also did a short story for Dark Horse. Um, I was drawing Conan, uh, an eight-page short story for that. And I did it in ink wash, which was different than my previous style. And then the combination of those two things kind of led to me doing the, you know, actually drawing Batman and the Turtles because it was a uh, similar in artistic styling and and i was you know i worked well with both bobby kerno over over at um idw and then also with uh jim chadwick at, at dc comics 
Oh, very cool. You know, I'm curious, and I don't know if this is something that you can kind of sum up, but I'm curious how a guy like you, like, you know, there have been so many artists before you that have drawn Batman and Turtles, but like, when I look at those books, they're beautiful, and I know, I recognize your artwork. I'm curious, like, how do, how does a guy like you who's come after so many, like, find his own style for those characters? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, dozens of iterations of both of, you know, the, the turtles and Batman. And, um, for both of them, the answer for me at least was that ahead of time. Uh, so after I was lucky enough to land the gig, so to speak. So once I knew I was drawing Batman and Ninja Turtles, um, I had about two or three months before we actually started on the comic. So, um, and during this time was when James, uh, Tinian would have been, uh, right. You know, creating pitches and writing scripts and stuff like that. So during that time I, uh, went through all of the, just all of the iterations of, of Batman and of each of the turtles that spoke to me and um, looked at a bunch of what I liked about those and then tried to filter it into, you know, what, however I would represent that. So what I mean is I was looking at um, the original, what we called the OG turtles in uh, volume three. That's what James and I called them, the OG turtles. Um, the original Mirage Turtles, there's so much like energy and volume to their musculature and the grittiness of the of Kevin Eastman, Peter Lair's original style for that stuff. Um, and then some of the costuming of the more modern, recent IDW Turtles. And then uh, with Batman, I was looking at different versions of like, you know, all the way from like an Ed McGuinness, the way he would draw Batman and he's just, he's almost the size of the Hulk, you know, <laughs> like the way that some people draw the Hulk, that's how big he drew the Batman and, um, uh, or somebody like Bart Sears. It's, it's so to some, uh, cause you, you asked me to summarize it. It's like looking at a, as many versions of those characters drawn by other people and find out what it is or try to find out what it is about them that seems neat to me about that, that version. And then try to somehow apply a similar formula to your own work. So the way I draw Batman doesn't look like how Ed McGinnis draws Batman, but there, that there's something about the power and stuff of his, you know, the way he draws them that maybe I would want to translate to mine. But to do that, I have to change a bunch of proportions because my style is not like his style, if that makes sense. Um, and the same thing with the turtles, um, different costume details and do as much as I could to try to make them unique and separate from each other. So they didn't look like the same turtle four times with just different color bandanas. Uh, I'm not the first one to think of that. I mean, I think Matteo Santaluco is an amazing artist. Uh, the, one of the more modern uh, and pro- in my opinion, best modern Ninja Turtle artists. And so he does a lot of different um, costuming details and stuff. And so I incorporated some of that stuff, but my proportions are very much more like the old original Eastman layer turtles. So I noticed Just, uh, that, but yours is I like, went through and oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, no, no, no please go ahead. Like, your turtles are a bit of a throwback. Like I, I, I don't know if I noticed as much the first time around, but when I was revisiting over the past weekend, I was like, you know, they don't have the wraps and they, they look, they're traditionally, they're clothed a bit more like the old turtles. They're also that kind of like chunky muscular thing that like the old yeah. are, which is cool. Like, it, yeah. it, like I didn't realize how much of a throwback they are until I was rereading them recently. I was like, man, they look a lot more like old school turtles than IDW's current run, which is distinct in its own. Yeah, I, th- I think that I think because the first exposure I had to the Ninja Turtles was that book four. So there were the color reprint. Um, so I got book four, then book two, then three, and then one or something like that, because that, this is before I would have had access to the internet to actually order them in, in a chunk or something. But um, the, uh, 
that was the point of evolution that they were as turtles at that point was what cemented in my mind what the turtles look like and feel like. So um, that's very much how I draw, you know, and I've even gone a little bit larger, a little bit more bulky with like Raphael. He's a little bit bigger than that even. Um, but the, uh, especially Leonardo, to me, Le I'm, I'm trying in my mind always to, to I don't know, re to reach back to that or be influenced by the Eastman Laird turtles from book four specifically. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I can see that too. There is a, I mean, the body types are, are varied, but there is a, I can see that influence. There is that like, that there's a certain like stoutness to them that you don't see later. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, Thank you. You know, there's another thing too, like uh, what, uh, so getting into Batman and Turtles specifically, I mean, what influenced other things? Like, like you have a Batmobile in there. Uh, I mean, in a thousand people have found the Batmobile before and like Batman's suit, like what went into those designs? Yeah, the, the Batmobile, I can take no credit for that. That was, um, so I worked with a bunch of different editors over the course of, uh, so for anyone who doesn't know, Batman Ninja Turtles was released and we released it in uh, three different volumes that spanned over about three years. So we would do like a six issue miniseries and then I'd go over and do another one like He-Man Thundercats and then come back and do Batman Ninja Turtles volume two and then go do Injustice Masters and then come back and do volume three of Batman Ninja Turtles. Um, so during that time, there was a lot of editors coming in and off or off and on the, the project. So it was still Jim Chadwick was the primary editor, but there were uh, associate editors I was dealing with. But um, David Pena, who was the associate editor who I worked with the most on the first volume, um, I asked him, hey, what bat or which uh, Batmobile should I be drawing for this? And so he sent me this design that had only been drawn a couple of times, I think, by David Finch. And uh, it was what the, so in that first volume, I'm just replicating what David Finch was, had drawn for his. And so, the, but it kind of almost looks like a beetle or something. Like it looks, you know, <laughs> it doesn't exactly invoke bat, but um, that was the design he wanted me to draw. So I was happy to draw it. Um, and then for the costume, each of the different, the, the first and second volume, Batman's costume uh, connected to whatever his current continuity was. It wasn't identical, but it was really similar. So like I would make, so in volume one, it was the, new 52 batman i believe so he had like the little piping on his chest and on his abs uh the little thin pinstripe type things um and that would have been the the new 52 and then when we did volume two it was the current version of batman was called the rebirth batman it was the one where his symbol is solid black and then there's like a thin yellow outline around the symbol okay so uh then in volume three uh that was my design because we did like these alternate it was almost like an Elseworlds type version where the characters were kind of combined with other characters or they were more street level. So like Batman's costume, he had like a trench coat and then he had a spray painted uh, bat symbol on his chest. And then later in that, when he remembers and quotes his true self, not to get too spoilery, but I'm assuming anyone listening to this is probably Red Volume 3, I'm assuming, um, that uh, he becomes the classic version of Batman at that point. So then he gets the black trunks, which he didn't have in the previous two volumes. And the, um, you know, his symbol is like bigger and just solid black. And, uh, but in each one, like the, the height that I draw the talons on his heads, that's not talons. Those are, uh, the, the, you know what I'm talking about? I guess the ears. <laughs> Whatever that, those yeah. are. The ears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the talons, uh, like that kind of stuff, the, the length of those and stuff that, that was very much left up to my discretion as long as I got most of the, the sort of costume details correct, you know. 
Okay, cool. I mean, how much part did you do in the story too? Like, I, I don't know if, like how the process worked of story development with those. I'm curious what your part was in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, it actually changed each time. Uh, so in volume one, James handed me a full script uh, in the first couple of issues. And then, so full script means very little would be left up to me to alter pacing or storyline wise. Um, and James is an incredible writer. So there was never anything that I felt like needed to be in quotes corrected, but it would be more like he might've written a panel in a fight scene that I might be able to, um, combine two or three of the panels he's written into one larger shot and make it more splashy. And that's more of my stylistic instinct is to go bigger. And, um, so I started making suggestions like that. He liked the suggestions and so then by issue six, the big fight in volume one, I'm still talking about by volumes, uh, by issue six, uh, where there's the fight in Arkham and all the villains are mutated and stuff. Um, James basically gave me like four or five, he would just say for the next four or five pages, just make a cool fight scene because he trusted my instincts enough at that point. We had established a good rapport. Cool. Um, and then he would tell me, you know, what needs to happen as the outcome, like by the end of this, you know, all the villains are unconscious and splinter has harley's mallet you know like he's he's written that type of thing but i'm it's up to me just to make up how it's going to go uh then in volume two we tried more of what's called the marvel method or the plot method and that's where he would give me like um a few paragraphs to to describe i'm sorry let me let me back up just a little bit so for volume two when we did the marvel method it was um he asked me up front like what are the things you want to draw and i gave him a list of stuff and then we at first talked about maybe having Joker as the villain. And then we shifted to Bane because some stuff made more sense to click for him. Um, and then because I like the idea of sieging the city and taking over, that felt more like a Bane thing. For sure. Um, yeah. And yeah. So, um, and so I gave him a list of ideas or themes that really pulled at me. And then he of course put it together and flushed it out in like this really awesome way. And then, then when it came to each issue, he would give me like a paragraph or two about what happens in the issue. And then it would be up to me to just break down all the pages uh, and figure out how it would break down, how many pages this scene would be. I mean, within reason, it, it's not like I would make it a, uh, anything that was too out of whack. It, you know, I've, I've worked enough in the, uh, in comics to know about how long it should be, you know, like sure. three pages versus four pages or something. Um, and we knew where each issue would end and begin and stuff. So, um, and then after I had drawn the full issue, the, uh, what are called wireframes, uh, they're like structure drawings before I've done, done the full inks. Um, I would send that back to him and then he would create the dialogue for it. And then later on there was a guy named Ryan. Um, I can't remember his last name right now, but Ryan was helping with dialogue as well. Cause James was just like, he had like five, um, five monthly titles going on. So, um, so then that was the plot method. And then in the volume three, it was a combination of those. So he wrote mostly full scripts unless it was a fight scene. And then, so every fight scene that we had, he just left it open to me. And then there was a lot more back and forth where I felt confident making suggestions, but with the knowledge that he's way better at writing and plotting and pacing than I am. So he would of course, if you didn't want to go in that direction, he would feel free to say, I'm, I'm going for more of this emotional beat. And maybe it's something that I hadn't considered, you know, what he's setting up for another issue or something. So um, that was the back and forth. And it was, I mean, it was a lot of growth and very rewarding to work that way, to get to know somebody over the course of a couple of years and, and 
you know, just click with them and find out, you know, you guys are both trying stuff with, with no ego involved. And, uh, when creative people get around each other, that, that can be sometimes a challenge where, you know, you make a suggestion, the other person doesn't want to take it just because it's your suggestion, but James has like no ego. And I, he never made a suggestion that I ever thought was off base. He was always right. So we were just like kind of double checking each other or something along the way. It was great. Very cool. You know, there's a lot of like showdowns and I'll just stick to volume one at first, but like there's a lot of showdowns. I mean, at least between, you know, Batman versus the turtles and then mm-hmm. Batman versus shredder. I'm curious where there's a lot of discussions about how those should pan out. Like I remember the first time I was like, really should all four turtles be beat by Batman? And it's just because I'm effective. But <laughs> there was a lot of discussion about how this would all pan out as who would beat who and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. I think, I think that, um, it's probably wisest for me to stay out of that (laughs) that debate. Um, so like after volume, so while I was working on volume two, I was at a Baltimore comic con and there were the, there was this, um, these guys who had a, a YouTube channel, and they came up to me and maybe they had a podcast as well. I can't remember, but they came up and it, they were either brothers or cousins. I can't remember, but they were related and they were really funny, but they kept trying to pin me in. One of them is like super on Batman side. And then the other one was more specifically on Michelangelo's side, but all the turtle side. And sure. they kept trying to pin me into who should have won because what, what the, what the Batman guy was saying was, you know, Batman's so tough, he was holding back and he still beat them. And then the Turtles guy was saying, but they were definitely holding back because, they, you know, they weren't going in for the kill and it wasn't like one-on-one each time. So, you know, in that first battle, Raphael gets tasered and so they're, you know, by the Batmobile. And that's not that's not really, in quotes, fair if you're just sure. going by skills and stuff. So, um, and I just started laughing and enjoyed the debate, but they kept asking me and I was like, I'm not, I said, it depends on the writer. Like it really does it. I was like, it, I, I don't want to answer this. It felt almost like I would rather be in the middle of a political or religious debate than get into this. <laughs> not actually, but, but cause Much I actually have, yeah. um, yes. Yeah. It's, it's less, um, uh, what is it? Inflammatory than that. So, yeah, I mean, personally, I, I have no, I mean, I think if Donatello went against Batman, that would be mismatched. Like Batman would defeat Donatello. Oh, for sure. And I'm a Donnie right. guy, but 100. percent Yeah, I and Donatello is my my second favorite turtle, by the way. Leonardo is my favorite. Um, okay. But you know, other than that, I wouldn't care to like speculate or whatever. That's fine. You know what? I, nope. What I picture in my mind is that Splinter is a complete match to everything that Batman can do technique wise. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm just saying my own personal headcanon is that Splinter is a master on every level Batman can be a master at and possibly a little bit more, but that he doesn't have any of the the more modern. Have you ever played Magic the Gathering? This is like a weird analogy. Okay. Um, I used to play Magic a very long time ago and I had, I entered into a tournament scene at the time when there were like some older players who had all the really good older cards, but they weren't using what at the time was referred to as new tech, like a new technique or a new piece of technology. So you'd have these newer cards that kind of broke open the metagame, what was called the metagame. And I kind of feel like maybe Splinter just doesn't have the new tech 
He doesn't, you know, uh, so sure. he's more the old school and then Batman has those newer techniques, but not in fighting so much as like the gadgetry and stuff like that. But that's really about it. I don't know. I'll, I want to draw a comic book that would be verses and every, I would draw this for like the next year of my life. I would love to draw and explore that um, because that's, you know, that would be an amazing thing to draw, but I don't really have a lot of input. <laughs> it is a, it is a huge landmine, no matter which way you <laughs> You really like oh the Batman guys will get you other like I like I said I'm protective of the turtles because I'm a turtle guy but then right, I, yeah okay well him versus Shred like I you're better off staying out of it <laughs> yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll just draw it if somebody writes it and and then the right, writer yeah. takes all the heat and I'll say I tried to tell him I'll say that every time no matter who comes up to me I tried to tell him that's yeah. great <laughs> uh, you know I'm curious I, I remember when I read the first one the first time I was I thought it had been I thought it was in IDW continuity. Uh, is there a reason why it ended up not being that way? I was just curious. I, I'm not sure if it's been established that it wasn't. Was there something oh, later that says I think that I it wasn't? Read something. I think it was, maybe I just read it later. Uh, for some reason I thought it was, I thought it was, and then I think I read somewhere that it wasn't. And by the time two rolls around, I think Shredder's dead. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, maybe um, that's yeah, that's a really good point. Because Shredder was dead. But in but he existed in volume two, so yeah. Right. Where would he? Yeah, um, and in volume two, we had it where he was in prison. But yeah, I'm yeah. not sure. I mean, it um, makes sense for you guys to be able. To that's a good it. question. Yeah, yeah. I I remember. So what I had just thought back to was when I remember once talking to James on the phone, and he said, or no, maybe it was right before we did an interview or something. But he had said, um. Yeah, somebody asked me about where it fell into the continuity, and we can't really say where it fell into the continuity, but I know where I think it fell in the continuity, but he was actually talking, we were doing an interview during volume one, so this was, this, I just assumed everything was, but now that you're bringing that up, that's a good point, and I really, I'm not sure, yeah. I think it's one of those things, too, like, people get so kind of caught up in that, and it's, it can really hamper a story, so you guys have to tell your story free from all the, oh, wait, this issue, this happened, so it allowed for the best story. So by the end of it, I was like, Oh, this is, it doesn't need to be in that continuity. Cause it doesn't, it's just, it's great on its own. It really doesn't. Yeah. I know that. I know what it's like though, to read a story and want it to in quotes count. Sure. You know, like yeah. whatever, whatever that is. Um, yeah. You don't love that thing that you love so much to have just been, what is that? You know, it doesn't matter. It's just in the, in the ether or something you want it to actually matter or so. Uh, but I'm not sure. That, that's a really good question that I haven't, you know, I haven't been asked actually. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> um, I gotta say too, like in all all the volumes, really, I, especially the first two, I thought it was you were talking about uh, Joker potentially being the villain villain for part two, and I kind of was happy, you know, even though I love Joker and he's the best Batman villain, I was happy not to have them revolve around Joker just because he's the go to Batman villain. Like. Mm. Rachel Ghoul and Shredder made sense together. It does, yeah. Logical thing. And then Bane in the second one, like, it, that really wouldn't have worked as well for Joker. Like, it, it, the, the choice of villains was very smart, I thought, in, on all accounts, really. Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, that's almost entirely James. I mean, I think James basically had, I mean, he picked everything for volume one, and then volume two, it was more like he brought it up, and it just seemed like a no-brainer because it was his idea, and it was a good one. Yeah. Sure. Do you know, um, I'm curious, uh, were you involved in the decision? Okay, so for those, if anybody hasn't read the, uh, the volume one, which I don't know why, but if they haven't, the payoff, <laughs> <laughs> the payoff is when all the rogues gallery villains become mutants. Um, yeah. Sort of like the, 
like the epicenter of like using both franchises to their full advantage is the rogues mm -hmm. less mutagen. It's great. Uh, <laughs> so I'm curious, like, did you guys, did you have any say in what uh, animals were chosen for each villain or like any thoughts on it or anything like that? Cause it turns out to be great choices all around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I just designed them. Uh, so James already had all the connections with who would be what animal. And um, I think I remember him writing an aside about, he wished that he had, that there was like a version of the, of these characters. He wished he could have picked a different animal, but that would have been too similar to something else. But I can't remember. Maybe he was talking about, he wished that he could have had Catwoman, And I can't remember what it was that he said, because it's been a little while ago. But um, I remember specifically what I remember from it is that um, Poison Ivy, I had the, the hardest time designing because I kept trying to do, like a um, a typical her her sort of normal humanoid look, but then do like a body horror thing, so that she had a weird texture to her skin, and like maybe the bottom part of her face was odd and sort of like insectoid instead of <clears throat> making her, because she ended up being like merged with like a praying mantis, sure. and um, she ended up looking a lot more almost like you, you know, less humanoid and more almost like an alien or something. Once, if you're thinking of like, or I'm trying to describe like body shapes just on audio. Um, so she was no longer standing upright as a woman and more like crouched down and, you know, with like reverse or inverse uh, jointed knees and, you know, stuff like that. So I think I went through three or four different designs for her. Um, but the rest, I think my designs were approved like on the first go around. Mm -hmm. I remember I went to like, I had just gotten through a bunch of designs and then we went and had a Japanese steakhouse that night. And then when I came back, they were like, everything's approved except for poison Ivy. And I was like, what? Cause I thought for sure I was going to have like 10, you know, back and forths with these different designs. Um, and then even the, you know, even with Poison Ivy, even though I was kind of stuck on her, it wasn't nearly as bad. I thought it was going to be a nightmare of like, because I was designing like eight or nine characters, whatever it was. And I thought sure. we were just going to have an endless back and forth. But no, it was, they pretty much responded to my instincts. So I was happy with that. <laughs> I think Polar Bear, Mr. Freeze, just because it's such a great, but obvious, perfectly <laughs> great connection. I just I really yeah. like seeing the bear and the backpack. <laughs> yes yeah i've been i you know since then people have that's probably the one i get the most feedback on of you know the the polar bear mr freeze is you know the one that they enjoyed the most so uh and it was probably the one i enjoyed drawing the most of them as well it is a really fun design it's nuts <laughs> uh when you guys were doing the first one were there plans for a sequel or was it let's just do this and see what happens and then go from there were there plans for number two if so, I think that James, I think, I think from James perspective it was, but we didn't know that it was going to be such a success. Um, so it's a six issue mini series and I was already done with three issues by the time the first one came out. And then we don't get like sales reports or whatever for quite a while after the issue comes out. I'm saying we as in me and James, like on the creative side of things, we don't really know. So by the end of issue six, when we were working on it, we knew it had been quite successful, but we didn't know numerically how successful and it was very successful in that way. So um, I'm assuming like with most creative endeavors, when you're in the thick of it, your brain becomes so immersed in that creative space that you can kind of look beyond what is usable 
you know, what's usable for the immediate story arc. So I think that James, it was a combination of knowing that it was pretty, you know, pretty successful by the end. And then also him just having other ideas that were not as good, uh, a good a fit for volume one, but would potentially springboard into, you know, later volumes. So um, I personally made it very clear that if they wanted to do more volumes of this, I'd definitely be on board. And James also really, you know, enjoyed himself and also made that clear. So it's um, kind of a non-answer because I really don't have an answer. I, I don't have like an answer on a, yeah, I, because like a lot of those decisions are made on a editorial and large business legal uh, level. So it would be like, you know, did IDW and DC Comics enjoy their collaboration contractually? You know, like that's the kind of level and I, you know, not privy to that ever. So uh, it's like, I don't find out until a lot of things have already been in the works and there's already stuff moving. Um, but I certainly wanted to keep drawing it, and I still want to, you know, there's, it's not impossible for there, for there to be more volumes of it. Um, and I would love it if they kept going. I want a trilogy of trilogies. That would be pretty sweet. Like <laughs> <laughs> just draw them forever is what I want. <laughs> you know, this may be out of your purview as well. I, I should have asked this earlier. Like, do you know how all this came together? Because like, I, I, I mean, I can't imagine as a kid watching both Ninja Turtles and Batman, the animated series, these two characters meeting mm -hmm. on it would have blown my mind as a six-year-old. Like, I'm curious, like, do you know how all this came together? Because it's, it's amazing. I, I can tell you the few stories that I heard and assume, but these are like second and third hand. So I don't know really, but um, sure. so my personal experience was that I all the way back right after I drew the cover of issue 24 of Ninja Turtles uh, for Bobby, Bobby Crino, um, I was pestering him to want to draw more turtles and Turtles are so popular. There is just a, a ton of artists who want to draw their own series of the turtles or draw a one shot or covers or whatever. There's just, you know, everybody wants to. Um, so as I was pestering Bobby uh, a couple times a month, and I mean pester, <laughs> I really do mean pester. Uh, he, you know, occasionally we talk on the phone and occasionally it would just be through email, but he eventually said um, that there, he, he said something like, you know, there's, he said it's confidential for now, but there, there is some talks right now about there being some crossovers with DC, uh, with our characters in DC comics. And we don't know exactly what, you know, what that might mean. And we don't know if it'll even happen. So it was very up in the air, very nebulous. Uh, but he's, I remember him saying, you would be a no brainer for that type of project. And I think he meant because I have such an established relationship with DC and then had, was working well with him. Um, so that was from, from my perspective, but that was like two years before anything actually manifested. So um, the next thing I personally know was that I had seen a retweet that uh, Jim Chadwick, my editor at the time, he had retweeted um, an announcement that there was going to be a Star Trek and Green Lantern crossover. And that was the first crossover I had seen of IDW in, in DC. And so uh, this was a couple of years, you know, after that conversation I had with Bobby. And so I thought, oh, neat. You know, if they're if they figured out that type of contract, they probably have a template or an, or an arrangement to do other crossovers. So I contacted Jim Chadwick and said, you know, hey, I'd, I'd love to do, uh, for example, a Batman Ninja Turtles crossover. That just seemed to make sense to me. Um, and if uh, if you have that you know, if, if you guys are thinking about that, here's some of my artwork. And so I showed him the links to the Conan work and then my Ninja Turtle work. Um, so that's my direct experience. But then the stories that I heard, um, I think uh, I think Kevin Eastman said that, because he loves Commandy, um, 
so in, in the DC Comics universe, there's a character named Commandy who's like in the future, and uh, Jack Kirby created him, and uh, Kevin Eastman just loved. And there's mutant animals in that world. It's like a post-apocalyptic world. If you've never met, or if you've never, if you've never met Commandy, that's great. If you've never read Commandy's, <laughs> I've not met him either, uh, but I've, you know, I've read it. Um, and uh, Kevin Eastman said he. he he was excited at the idea of pitching a Ninja Turtles commandy crossover, which, Hey, even that could still happen. Who knows, you know, but he said it would make sense where the turtles are sent to the future of a alternate post-apocalyptic, you know, earth where commandy is there and there's other mutant animals around. And so in one way they almost feel at home because there's like these communities of like mutant animals and then, you know, but whatever. Uh, and whenever he, uh, suggested that Kevin Eastman did. He suggested uh, suggested it to Dan DiDio, who was co-publisher at the time, and they were they knew they know each other from a while back. And Dan said, um, "Nobody." What did he say? Um, oh, what did he, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but it was something like, "Instead of Ninja Turtles and Commandy, why not why not cross them over with Batman?" That Dan DiDio made that suggestion, and then Kevin Eastman said, "Oh, I didn't even know that was on the table." Like, I, I didn't even know that was an option to try, you know, to, to cross them over with Batman. Um, so it's possible it came up, it came up in, you know, from Dan's off the cuff remark. It could have come up there. Um, it could have been where IDW, because um, another idea, or I'm sorry, not another idea, another um, story that I heard, a secondhand story, was that uh, originally it started off as a Ninja Turtles and Justice League crossover, and then it turned into a Batman and Ninja Turtles. So I don't know uh, exactly, but those are all probably true in some respect uh, <laughs> and sure. uh, combined together into whatever, you know, actually happened. So uh, I can imagine them just talking, you know, having a pitch meeting where they just talk about how different properties would fit with the turtles and that sort of thing. I mean, it just seems like Batman is the best fit. Like they're both like street level heroes with this mm-hmm. You got to figure like, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe just because I'm not as big of a Superman guy, I just Turtles and Superman, they don't seem like they would fit together. But all <laughs> these characters that are on rooftops and in the dark city, right. like they kind of fit together in a nice. Yeah. They go in the sewers together. They got little yeah. gadgets, and yeah. you know, there's a heavy overlap in, in the type of lore that they have. So I agree, sure. it's the best fit. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I would love to, just on a side note, I'd love to draw that Ninja Turtles commandy crossover. If that comes up and anyone's listening to this and they want to do that, I'd love to draw that too. <laughs> cool. I'll look into commandy. I'm honestly not familiar. That's great. Um, you know, it's it, getting into volume two. There's some really cool stuff in volume two that, that took me by surprise delightfully. Like there's a really cool, like, um, uh, um, stuff from the 87 cartoon. Like you got to draw the turtle blimp. And the turtle van and a whole bunch of other yeah. things. Like I was like, well, like I was delighted to see those things. Was, was was that a surprise for you to be able to put those in? The um, let's see, I'm trying to think of how that came up. But yes, it was a it was a great surprise. I suggested a little homage to the to the opening of the turtles cartoon where April is driving the the van and then it launches Nightwing, Robin, and the four turtles. Yes, that was got, great. Like, yeah, ray guns and stuff. They're shooting. Um, so that I'm I so in in the plot method that we we're working on in volume two, um, James had written had left it very open about how they infiltrated the Staten Island, uh, the or Liberty Island is actually what it's called, um, where Bane had like set up 
you know, his, his home base and stuff that they had to infiltrate almost like a fortress. And, um, so I threw out a bunch of suggestions and, and while I was doing the pacing, so the sort of rough breakdown visually of what was going to happen panel to panel, I had the idea to do that. It would be really funny or really fun to do that. And then James wrote back and said, you know, that's brilliant. Can we please do this? Uh, he was basically asking to make sure that Jim Chadwick, our editor was okay with it. He's like, yeah, that's great. So, um, the, Adding the opening homage, that was my idea. Using the actual, the van, I'm assuming that was James's idea. Um, we had a setup for showing the turtle blimp in the background in, in an earlier issue. That was James's idea because he knew we wanted to use it in, in issue six. It was my idea to have the, the cure for the hyper steroid, the hyper venom, the mutated venom thing that um, Bane had to be stored in the blimp, which it actually doesn't make a lot of sense if you think about it, because uh, the craft itself needs to be lighter than air. That's how it's sure. staying aloft. Sure. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the mist has to be heavier than air to come down. So, I mean, all of the stuff I knew even when I was drawing it, but it, it, it's just a neat idea to have them blow up their own blimp and then all of the cure comes out of it as if that was, you know, that's how they delivered it. Sure. Um, so, uh, but yeah, don't write like a, a scientific paper based on that. I think it'll fall apart. <laughs> well, you know, I had another thing and this is just, I was just like laughing <laughs> myself. Have you ever, so, uh, uh, for those who haven't read volume two, Bane, like you just said, sets up his base of operations in the head of the Statue of Liberty or in yeah. Liberty Island and Bane it yeah. is sitting in the head of the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> have you ever been in the Statue of Liberty? No, but Jim Chadwick, my editor, has. Have you have you been in the head? Like, yes. And oh, you have. <laughs> it's so <Bane>. small. <laughs> there is no way Bane can fit up those stairs. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's so cool. But Bane fitting those so high, like, yeah. I was so stuck. Like, how the hell did he get those? I can barely fit those damn stairs. It was so. Yeah. So yeah, so we can assume we can assume that in this alternate reality, there's a larger Statue of Liberty, and the the head is larger. So yeah, when I came up with the conceptual sketches, so when James wrote it that uh, Bane had set up in the Statue of Liberty, which I just think is a great idea, by the way. Oh, it's just great. A cool and he, visual she, they cover the mask with Bane's mask. Yes. It's perfect. It's great. It's a great idea. Um, <laughs> and then that you know that Bane had a throne in there. And so I started doing some uh, conceptual sketches and I had it as if the head was huge, you know, like this huge statue head. Cause I've never been in the Statue of Liberty and it just seems like infinitely big to me. Oh yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> um, and so the sketches that I did, James then replied with some, I'm sorry, I messed that up. Not James, Jim Chadwick, our editor who has been up in the head. He sent some of his own photos, but it was, they were pretty old. And then he also sent me some links to, um, like other photos online of people being in there. And it's pretty small, like maybe three people could stretch their arms across or something yeah, and, yeah. and touch both sides. So it's very, so I, we cheated it for sure, but it would have been, it was a much more realistic cheat than what I originally wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> the technodrome within the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's yeah, great. I wanted it to be like this big, you know, sort of globed uh, throne room type thing, but... You know, we do it. We, we do what we can. We <laughs> you don't realize how under you don't realize how underwhelming it is until you're in there, crying, yeah. sweating, and that it. it was, I was a kid, <laughs> but I just remember how tight it is in there, and I was like, "It's great," mm -hmm. and it's such a yeah. great visual, though. And you know what? Speaking of the Bane mask, I noticed something because I I bought the collected book um, mm -hmm. recently to uh, to read up on Volume Two. Um, 
And I noticed like all the foot soldiers had Bane masks, which looked really cool. And I was here at one, there was a ditched cover. It looked like where Rocksteady was going to wear the Bane mask. Was there a plan for those two to be wearing Bane masks at some point? Um, I think that probably was an idea that, um, that Kevin Eastman had. And is that probably the sketch? Was it a sketch? Was it a heavy Sharpie sketch? Cause if so, it was probably Maybe. one of Kevin's concepts Maybe. or ideas. Um, I don't remember James ever talking about it, but it might've been a thought that Kevin had that ended up, you know, not, maybe he pitched it on the cover because whenever he's coming up with cover roughs, we're doing that like months in advance before the book has technically been fully written. It's like we have, you know, James has like story beats to hit. Um, So it's possible that he might've thought that, but actually I haven't, I don't remember that sketch, so I don't want to hazard a guess too much. But yeah. no, I'm just curious. Um, yeah. I mean, like, uh, uh, just for those who haven't read it too, like Venomized Bebop and Rocksteady was such an inspired idea. I like well, mm-hmm. fun to draw because those I, those two are always fun anyway. But like them jacked with Venom is just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They finally feel like I mean, because they're they're obviously very strong, but they finally feel like they're going to be invincible in this situation because they you know they've got Bane who's like. Uh, you know, he's incredibly smart. He's, he's very strategic and, you know, they can of course see that and they've already seen how he's taken over all these different sects of the, of the foot clan that had dissolved after in our continuity that shredder had been arrested and all this stuff. So, um, yeah, to see them all even huger. Um, and then, uh, in to, to me, it, so it was my idea to have Robin put, Basically, you know, Bebop walks up and he, th- he feels like he's invincible and he's trying to provoke them into a fight. So he's like pushing Robin, Damien in the chest, yeah. like kind of like, what are you going to do about it, Shorty? And so it was my idea that while he's doing that, because he's, he's in sl- such close proximity that um, Robin, like sleight of hand, puts like a little bomb, like a little bomb that when it blows up in three seconds, it disconnects his venom supply. Yes. And so he basically, you know, Bebop has a little mini Bane freak out, which is, Oh no, <laughs> you know, my, my steroid is, is cut off here. Um, and that's how that was the, you know, the, uh, the flame or the ignition for the whole big fight scene and stuff. So uh, okay. it was James's idea to have them jacked up on venom, but that specific scene was, was my idea, um, which was, funny to have i'm not a big fan of damian robin by the way i always draw him like i'm making fun of him because he's always such like a little brat about stuff but <laughs> I, so i'm not familiar with that robin i i mean i know yeah. but like i i didn't realize it was him at first because i just don't know that version of robin and i was like man is he such yeah. an insufferable prick all the time he is yeah okay yeah so so when i drew robin way back you know when i first you know came on to to DC Comics, um, it was Tim Drake. And Tim Drake is my favorite Robin. I loved him. Sure. Uh, I feel like I, I feel like he's a friend of mine that, you know, is went away to college and now I hardly ever get to see him. You know, that's what it feels like. Um, so whenever drawing Damien, who is Batman's biological son, if anyone didn't know that. Um, so, you know, Talia, Al Ghul, and Batman had Damien but Batman, she held it secret from, from Batman. He didn't, you know, he didn't know until Damien had already been trained and was like 11 or 12. He was an assassin. So he actually killed people and stuff. So anyway, but he's insufferable. He's, he's a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. And they, yeah. I think that the writers take pleasure in making him a little brat. So when I draw him, I actually make fun of him. Uh, every time I draw him, I draw him with like a little pouty face. Like he's, just on the verge of throwing a temper tantrum. I'm, I'm doing it internally kind of to make fun of him. Um, 
the drawings across the room now, but I actually did a commission recently that has Batman and, and Damian Robin on, on a comic blank and his, uh, his face is all pursed up. Um, it's funny to see, uh, I don't know, but anyway, but I mean, this is an audio podcast anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> when he, when Raphael musses his hair and he gets pissed off, <laughs> my favorite part <laughs> with Robin, yeah. <laughs> he gets all yeah. pissed off and wrath. <laughs> yeah just yeah it's like um there's there's just enough respect that that robin didn't flip out at, at that exact moment because they had he learned respect for him um sure yeah you know i'm curious about volume three like um so i mean one is uh you know turtles going to batman's universe two is batman goes in the turtles universe Three, like all bets are off. It's a crazy shit show. Like, how did it come about? Because it's nuts. It's it's like I remember like starting it and being like, I I I I, I to my great shame, I did it digitally because I was catching up because I hadn't read it. Um, but I, I I started and I was like, no, there must be something wrong with the file because this is where the story starts in volume three, and it's such a, it throws you right in and it's really cool. Mm-hmm. It was you like the yeah. merged universes of Batman and Turtles. So, I mean, how did that story come? Because it's wildly different than one and two in a great way. It was, that was almost entirely James, who's brilliant, if I haven't already said that. Uh, We were at a signing at San Diego Comic-Con, a a joint signing. And so he, while people are getting their, you know, we're signing their books, he leans over to me. So we're both like leaning away from the table where people are, you know, putting their books and stuff. And he goes, I've got an idea for volume three. And it starts with Krang in the belly of the anti-monitor. And I was like, oh, like even I promise you right now, I'm actually feeling a little bit of goosebumps because it's so perfect. The anti-monitor with Krang in his belly, anti-monitor is huge. Krang can grow huge or whatever if he has the molecular amplification unit or whatever it is. Um, It was just perfect. So it started with that visual in James's idea. And then he extrapolated from that, you know, if, you know, so it works perfectly with the, there's a setup as a, almost a throwaway line in the first volume where it says Krang through the Ninja Turtles and Shredder into a portal into essentially he's just throwing them away, but they end up in the DC universe. That's how they get to the DC universe in the first volume. It's just like a throwaway line kind of. Oh yeah. Um, and, but then that set it up for, well, how did Krang have that power? What did he, why did he do that? Why, you know, what did he want from that? And so now we're bringing James specifically brought Krang back in the third volume. And um, so it, it, you know, if Krang had the ability, had access to the anti-monitor technology, who knows how he got it, but if he had access to it, he could build different worlds or like sort of slivers of universes that are merging together or, you know, kind of separate them and stuff. So that's where, the idea originated and then it was James putting together which Robin worked best with which turtle. And I think all of them fit really well, except for Mikey and Damien. I think mm. that like Leo and Nightwing is dead on um, sure. Tim Drake, Robin, who's into, he's an investigator and into technology and stuff. He works really well with uh, Donatello. So would Batgirl. Batgirl would have also worked with, with oh, yeah. Donatello as well. Um, and then Raphael and Red Hood is perfect. And then Mikey, I mean, he's, he's maybe the best you could say is, you know, he like Damien can kind of be sarcastic and 
can kind of be funny and Mikey is like really funny, but really that's the only overlap. So it almost just like we kind of had to stick them together. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. But uh, uh, anyway, all of that was from James and then he wrote, he had that all listed in the outline and then gave it to me. And then from there I came up with like a whole bunch of different uh, costume ideas and stuff for how the, the characters would be merged together. Um, and most of those went through without a hitch the uh, laughing man which was a combination of shredder and uh, joker that one gave me some some trouble uh the first visual approach i tried to go with was um like a samurai armor that had a jester theme so like mm. it'd be metal armor but it would have a jester like costuming like sure. the shape of the metal armor and stuff um and the the mask would uh that's almost the only thing that carried over to the final design was okay. that, you know, that metal mask on his face with sort of like an etched in or molded smile um, was, you know, carried over. And then the rest of it was just like, no, this is too on the nose or whatever. So I had to do a lot of different iterations, but almost everything else was pretty easy to click on. Um, seeing those I'm merged sorry, know, just, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. What's that? No, I was saying seeing those merged turtle costumes is really what like, that <laughs> third volume for me. That's such, they're such cool. All the turtle, all the turtle Robins is great. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Um, my wife, Kiki off camera had grabbed me. I know no one at, at home can see this, but this is the, uh, that. Yeah. He's just insufferable. Yeah. Up Damien face. He's just such a brat all the time. Really so, um, <laughs> and so to me, when I'm drawing him, I'm like, I'm, I've done like back in high school, if I wanted to be mean to somebody, cause I, I couldn't fight but it would be you draw like a, um, a, a drawing of them that makes fun of them kind of. And that's kind of what that is. Every time I'm drawing like a caricature in my mind of what Damien is, but making fun of his brattiness. <laughs> it really is. Like I, I was watching, like, especially in volume two, I was like, man, this care like, why is this? Like, this is the worst draw in, in first, like, liking him. Like, I, mean, I thought Jason Todd was rough. And then the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> about this whole thing. Mm hmm. Yeah, every um, every time he's in a scene, it's uh, but it's, but people love him because he's such a rapscallion. I think. Sure. Yeah, I mean, he's interesting. <laughs> he's so angry, you know, but he's yeah. like like you want to throttle him for it. So, <laughs> um, let's see here. You know, for volume uh, so getting to the volume three, like there's some other cool things too that were like the merged un universe. Like, so when you show the bat cave, turtle cave, whatever it is now, mm -hmm. like there's the bat van. Um, there's also a tricep. Mm -hmm in place of the dinosaur in place of the T-Rex. There's a lot of cool things like that. I couldn't figure out what the coin was, and I don't know if it's too obscure for you to remember what I'm talking about. No, oh, no, it's not too obscure. That's, that uh, Jap that's a Japanese yen instead of a penny. Oh! That <laughs> oh, just shows my ignorance. I just oh, no, no, that's okay. I, I don't know what a Japanese yen looked like. I looked it up, and then, you know, I just had the idea of, let me think of a coin currency from Japan that would make sure. sense instead of the penny. So, um that was that was the extent <laughs> the extent cool. of that. Yeah. And then uh, the the Batcave thing uh, that was also James's idea. He actually had an idea to make them feel even more sort of um, held together with duct tape. I think it was the description he used. So I think I went a little little bit more sleek than he wanted. I think he wanted everything to look more hodgepodge together. Mm. Um, so that's maybe one of the few things that I didn't that I didn't nail in what he was trying to get at. But he, he was like, no, I like what you did. I just was picturing it more homemade looking. Mm. Um, so, but uh, uh, in general, I think that it, he was still pretty happy with it. Though. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, like it, it, like it kind of lives up to that merge potential where it's like, 
like I said, the bat van and all those things that like, I, like <laughs> how do we mix them together? And I mean, the story is crazy. So like volume three, uh, the, the universes are combined and then Raphael prime comes in. I'm curious, like when did the Mirage universe start to enter this and how was rap <laughs> as the, the time traveler? Because I think the natural choice would have been Donnie, but I, as a Donnie guy, I was kind of glad, like, first of all, volume two was straight up Donnie's story and a great one. Um, mm-hmm. So like volume three using Raph, who was kind of out of his element doing the time travel thing. I was like, I liked it just because it was more interesting, I think. So I'm curious how that was all Mirage and Raph time traveling, all that stuff. How did that work? <laughs> um, let's see. Most of that would have been would have been James as far as his, his idea. But as far as so uh, Kevin Eastman and I, um, first of all, I've, I've looked up to Kevin Eastman since I knew that there was a guy named Kevin Eastman. Like I, when I got that volume four book, the reprints, the color reprints where all of them had the, the red masks, um, in the back of that, there's like a, a bio of Eastman and Laird separately. And it talks, it says their birthdays. I have, I share the same birthday as Kevin Eastman, a different year, but we, <laughs> May 30th is both of our birthdays, oh, uh, which is coming up and, you know, very soon. Um, which as a kid that felt like we were cosmically linked to become you know, best friends or something like that. Uh, and awesome. we have ironically become close. So maybe there's something <laughs> to that. But anyway, uh, the, the point I'm making is that um, in volume one, we hardly worked together. We had met a couple times, but mostly I worked in isolation and he did his covers in isolation. But in between volume one and two, um, we ended up going to a couple of conventions together. Like we went to one in Dublin, Ireland together and we hung out quite a bit there. Uh, then we hung out at the San Diego con um, that was near that. And then there was a signing he did in Lawrence, Kansas, which is like a 40 minute drive from our house, but we went there and, and hung out with him and stuff. So we started becoming friends. And then by um, <clears throat> right before volume two, he and I worked on a book together. I actually worked in Kevin Eastman's uh, home office called the Commandy challenge. This is how I actually worked with him physically on the same pages and how I learned more about Commandy Cause I also didn't know much about Commandy. Um, there was a series for Jack Kirby's 100th birthday, if he were still alive. Uh, but, it, you know, 100 years ago, he had been born, where DC was doing a series of books uh, featuring his characters. So Commandy was one of his favorite and one of his creations. So they had this series where each issue would be drawn by a different creative team, like a completely different writer, pencil, inker, the whole, the whole thing. And so... Um, uh, Tom King was the writer and then Kevin Eastman and I did the artwork and we did it in an overlapping collaboration where we both did roughs, we both did pencils, we both did inks, everything together. And um, that established that we worked very well together. Also, Kevin Eastman is an awesome guy, just on a side note, like on authentically really a nice guy. And um, that uh, we would love to work together more if, if the opportunity presented itself. Then volume two happened. Then at the beginning of volume three, James had said, what do you think about having um, Kevin Eastman draw? I think at first he said, draw an issue, I think is what he might've said. Um, Because we weren't sure exactly how all this was going to play out. So it could have been where there was an issue that featured mainly the Mirage Turtles. And then that would be the all Kevin Eastman issue or something. And um, I said, I would just love it. I would love to do you know, him to be drawing either the characters on the same page or him drawing a whole issue uh, or us working out on covers or whatever it could be. And so the logistics of that ended up being, you know, falling between Kevin and I to figure out. But once 
we asked him and he was on board and Jim Chadwick and uh, Bobby Curno and, and Nickelodeon and everybody was on board. Then um, after the, so the, the uh, logistics of it were James would have the script. I would earmark every single page that had an involvement with Kevin. Um, so it might even be where he just draws one little guy. It might be where he draws the whole page, except for I draw one little guy. You know, that happened in issue two. There was a lot of that where I would draw a whole page except for one thing. And then he would draw a whole page except for one thing. Um, then those would be the pages that before we messed with any other pages, we would work the logistics of who's going to do the roughs for that page. It would, it would make more sense if he's going to draw almost everything for him to work out the roughs and the pencils and stuff like that, except for my little contribution. Um, and then later it was more along the lines of, and later issues where I was drawing almost the whole page, except for one Mirage turtle, or there might be a couple of Mirage turtles in there. And so then on those pages, I would do, I would rough everything out, um, send him either a cell phone photo or a JPEG or something for him to, he would uh, kind of, if he had any other ideas for poses or if he had an idea for a different layout or if he um, changed the pose of the characters a little bit, he would basically draw on a separate sheet of paper uh, his structure and version of the Mirage Turtles, but kind of fitting in the same footprint of what I had drawn for the layout. Then he would send me a cell phone photo or scan or something of those. And then I would trace the structure of them back into my page. So it's such a, because we wanted the artwork to be on one page as opposed to him drawing on a separate sheet and then digitally merged oh, together sure. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then after I did, so I traced his structure that I have my own structure that I worked out. Then I would do my part of the inks and then send FedEx them to him. Then he would take them with him to Russia or whatever show he was going to, because he just did so <laughs> much travel that year. Um, that he was working the whole time on the flights and at conventions and stuff. And I was doing similarly, but we were just all over the world doing stuff. Um, and then he would get his stuff done and he would uh, FedEx it back to me. I would do any last minute touch-ups and then scan in the pages. And then I would add a, a fake digital duo shade texture that made them look more like the texture of the original Eastman layered Mirage Turtles, the very first ones that sort of those end of the, the line, the crosshatch line look. Um, then it was like, well, what do we do about color? Because we want them to be black and white, but do we make it where they still have cast lighting? So if the sky is red, do they look reddish? Do we mm. give them all red bandanas? Because that could be confusing if somebody is uninitiated, you know, because the first time they had colored bandanas, they were all red. Or do we give them each individual colored bandanas? And then it was like, no, let's just keep them black and white. And then that led to in, in the continuity, the laughing man even says some stuff like this. He says, He's he's fight so Laughing Man is you know the the merged version of Shredder and, and the Joker and he's fighting against Mirage Raph and he's you know they're fighting back and forth and uh, joke I'm sorry Laughing Man says something like if I cut you will you bleed red or will it be gray like he says something like yeah. that in the story and that came from this conversation <laughs> like that put James's brilliant mind working on he actually incorporated it into the dialogue. Um, so it was a logistical nightmare that um, <laughs> it ended up working out because because Kevin's not afraid to work uh, in the same way that I am. In other words, 
you you just are working at the hotel you're working at your at the convention you're working when you're in the green room when you're taking a break at the show on the flight you know all over the world and uh, he's he's almost always overcommitted because he's um you know very popular and a very good artist and people love working with him um so it was uh, very fortunate for us that he was able to to work it in and that we were able to get everything done on time <laughs> oh very cool yeah it, it's such a dynamic cool look like i was like i said i was just like it was such a it starts out crazy, and then the mirage trail's thrown in, and it's like yeah. great, geeky, amazing, crazier. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And to answer, um, so that was a long answer, but to address something you had said about why is it like you know the, the mirage raft versus oh. Donatello or something? Yeah. Um, I think what that came down to was that James just likes Raphael more. To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> I think it kind of came down just to that, where James was just like, "Let's have it be Raph," um, and then. Uh, I think it also co- connected with the homage of him wearing like the um, the fedora and the long trench coat from like the 1990s movie. Oh, so sure. I don't know, it, you know, which is what he, the disguise he was wearing at the beginning of the script. And right, stuff right, right. Like that. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's really fun. I hope we get to do something like that again. It was awesome. It was really cool. It, it, it's like, it's just nuts. And I, and just as a side note, I love um, that prime Batman, that smiling, happy Batman. <laughs> I, I don't know why, because I see Batman as like a dark character too. I, you know, if I pick a movie, I would probably go with the Nolan ones. But that Batman Prime was just made me happy throughout the entire thing. I loved it. It was great. I'm really happy to hear that. We we talked about maybe doing the, uh, the we we were referring to him in, in the script as the OG Turtles or the OG Batman. That's how sure. we signified them, so we knew the difference. Um, but we briefly discussed maybe having the original 1939 Batman. So he'd yeah. be equal, similarly dark. And would he go as far as to have a firearm? No, nah, probably not. But you know, the very first one with the weird scooped ears that yep. kind of fanned out from his head in a weird way. Um, and then we, uh, I think what James said was let's, we should probably just go with the most iconic Batman. That's kind of like the in quotes, golden age. So that was the one we ended up going with. And it was really fun getting to draw a smiley Batman. That, you know, so, kind of it's so fun. For, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed that. <laughs> uh, you know, the last little bit I want to talk about was the film. I mean, were you involved in the film at all? Or, or was that? Nope. No. Uh, the okay. closest involvement I had was that, I mean, uh, the filmmakers based it upon mine and James's you know, first volume of Batman Ninja Turtles. And then they took, I think, some elements also from, um, so there was my th- our three volumes of Batman Ninja Turtles. And then there was also, like, after the first volume of Batman Ninja Turtles, there was an animated-looking um, uh, book that was drawn by one of my good friends named John Simariva. And this one is called Batman Ninja Turtles Adventures. And it had oh, yeah, that was great. an animated I read that. look. Yeah. Yes, it was good. Um, yeah. And um, that... I think some of the elements in that also were kind of fused in yeah, to so. uh, the movie as well. So um, it, it was primary. the structure of it was built upon the structure that we had in volume one. And then they took elements and made up new elements and stuff like that. So um, <clears throat> we had heard uh, rumors off and on for a couple of years that they were going to, that they might make a cartoon and that it was for sure getting made. And then other times we'd hear, we wouldn't hear anything for like six months. And so uh, sometimes stuff like that just falls apart where studios decide let's scuttle it or, you know, whatever, there's a different, a change in management and then things don't work out anymore or something. But, 
Um, then I heard, no, no, they're not making yours. They're making the John Cimarriva one, the more uh, animated looking one that's called Batman Ninja Turtles Adventures. And either way, I was just excited to hear that something was happening. And then um, whenever the uh, announcement was made more official, our editor sent us an email that said, okay, it's now official that it's happening and you guys can talk about it. And, um, but I didn't get like an early screener. We bought our copy. <laughs> um, <laughs> we bought it on streaming the day it became available. Um, we bought the DVD later. And then like a few months after that, I went and visited the DC offices and they did give me a copy then. Oh, cool. uh, just, I think because I was just in the offices. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I have like two hard copies and then we also have it on streaming. Um, and the, uh, if anyone's seen it and has read the comics, then you'll, you'll know that like in the, I think the first biggest diversion divergence, uh, maybe that's what it is, not diversion, but divergence in story is when uh, Shredder and Batman meet for the first time. And in the comic book, you know, they just kind of have a, have a standoff of now we know who each other are. Um, and then Shredder throws down a smoke bomb and he leaves. Yep. And then, you know, they, they meet up later. later. Um, but in the animation, things go very differently. Almost the same thing happens. You know, Shredder's still at the top of the building, looking down at Batman, who's in a warehouse, and he's about to leave, but Batman shoots like a grapple hook and it wraps around the Shredder to keep him from leaving, which ticks him off and he cuts the, the cord. And then he's like, okay, let's do this. And then they actually have a fight. And the fight is amazing yeah. in, that, in the cartoon. It is so, it's great. Um, and when Kiki and I were watching it, Kiki, my, my wife, uh, when we were watching it uh, the day it came out on streaming, I when they got to that part, I was almost like, I, I've described it as I almost felt like I had an out-of-body experience when okay. I was watching that. And the way is because, the, or the reason is because, um, uh, imagine you were watching like a home movie of an event that you're very, very familiar with. So you remember this family barbecue or something as a kid. And then you, you know, you're watching it and you're like, ha that was a great day. And then in the middle of it, something happened that you remember not happening. Like you, you're like, whoa, whoa, that didn't happen at all in the real, in the story that I remember, sure. in the, the reality that I remember. So it felt like take, feeling like I was in a, a different plane of existence or something. So I actually felt a, uh, a change in the pressure in the room. And I felt like I was behind myself watching myself watch the movie which is a very weird feeling to have. Um, I've never had a feeling like that before. Um, and I think that that's maybe like a single taste, like a little taste of what Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird must have had when sure. all of you know their turtle stuff was a, um, adapted for all these different types of medias and stuff like that. So um, it was a, it's a great movie, but I really, yeah, we didn't have any input on it other than just seeing it and going, whoa, we wish we could have done that. We wish we had room for that fight, you know, um, really cool ideas, you know, inserted and just the differences in them and stuff. Cool. Is there any other highlighted like ideas that you're like, oh, that was a cool idea or anything else you wanted to mention about it? Cause that, it was a cool little movie. It paid it off nicely. Yeah. Um, Let's see, I think having the bat and man bat thing. So in other words, where Batman becomes mutated as man bat type mutation. Oh, yeah. That's a really funny or cool um, visual trickery and it works with the name. And uh, you know, the closest we got is in volume two, there was like a bunch of man bats that were protecting the Lazarus pit that Bane went into <laughs> or something yeah. like that, What you know. Um, but it, it's a neat idea to have Batman get mutated into a man bat. 
I'm trying to think. It's been a while since I've seen it now. Um, they switch but, uh, up a lot of the animals too. They switch up, I would say, a handful of the animals for different choices. Oh, too. yeah. They they change Poison Ivy into a Venus flytrap. And then the joke is that she just can't move. So it's yes. like it's they enter thing. the room. Yeah, yeah. They just like edge around the room so yeah. that they can't be touched. That's pretty funny. That's, that's a good yeah. idea too. So I'm, I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff like that in there that if I rewatched it, I could make a list. Sure. But at, at the time, it was that that shredder Batman fight was just like, man, I wish we had like a 20 page section that we could have done something like that in the comics. It is a cool fight. And, and I know you don't want to get into the middle of it, but I thought shredder should have won. So I enjoyed that first fight. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, no uh, and, and, and a great set of toys too, by the way, I don't know if you saw the toys that came from that, the GameStop Batman turtle stories. They're awesome little set of, of action figures that came. Yeah, from the, the only one I have is the Bat Mikey. Um, and Kevin Eastman oh, actually that's sent great. it to me yes. just as a, yeah, as like a present because he got an extra one. So he sent it to me, but I've seen them online and, and yeah, they look pretty sweet. Yeah, they're pretty cool. Um, you know, last thing I wanted to ask you, you mentioned it earlier that Leo was your favorite turtle. I just want to know why. Uh, I've always been drawn to leadership types and uh, I like the idea of being like coming into your own, but still struggling with, you know, he's still struggling to find his own voice and to get past his own insecurities. And maybe leaders just never get past that, you know, but they just hide it. They have to feel confident, as confident as possible. Um, I I don't know. There's just something about his dynamic with Splinter and then also having to rein in his brothers that, you know, specifically Raph and Mikey that I can just relate to in some ways. Um, it's not like I, I don't feel personally like I want to be a leader of anything, but um, I can identify trying to wrangle in your friends who are little <laughs> or cousins or just whatever um, that are just harder to, you know, they're, they're not as focused and the, the frustration that comes with that and then trying to maintain like a certain level of like lightheartedness. Um, not that he's lighthearted, but what I mean is where you don't want to come down on him too hard uh, to keep it lighthearted, you know? Uh, so it's that kind of stuff. I don't know. Uh, I would love to tell a story where like, you know, Splinter is either dying because of old age or because of battle and Leo is needing to take on the full mantle of, mm-hmm. and, and they've told some similar stories, not of Splinter dying, but uh, some similar stories of Leo taking the mantle in the IDW series, which is a fantastic series because Splinter has, uh, at least in the last um, story that I read, um, was in charge of the Foot Clan. So Leo is like the full-on master of the Turtles. And then there's like a weird tension between him and Splinter because Splinter is the leader of the Foot Clan. I think that's brilliant. That's a great, oh, yeah. you know, um, but I would love to tell a story where Splinter actually is dying and then Leo has to try to fill those shoes, which is almost impossible. Psychologically, you just can't fill those shoes but he's got to yeah. do the best he can and, and how Raph would step up in that situation and just stuff like that. Yeah. There's been some cool stuff. Like I think sometimes Pete Leo gets glossed over because of, uh, uh, you know, he's the leader. He's like the Cyclops character, but there's some cool things they introduced him with that insecurity. Also there's sometimes arrogance that comes into play, which, which I like that because it, you'd have to be that level of confidence. And sometimes that leads to a little bit of arrogance. So like that, Agreed. Yeah. and Leo when he's played in a, in a more interesting way, you see those things come out. And I really like that. So. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think I'm also drawn to him because that was that first, now that I'm thinking of it, uh, you know, that, that reprint book, the oh, yeah. color reprint book that, you know, that was just maybe the definitive 
Turtles to me. And since he was the primary character, as far as that first story arc, you know, where he was instead of Raphael from the 90s movie, where they kind of retold it from Raph's perspective, um, where Raphael got, you know, is taken on all the Foot Clan on the rooftop and then he gets thrown through the window. In the book, it was Leo. So maybe that's part of it as well. It's just that that was the iconic, definitive version of the Turtles for me. And so that's go, that goes on the artistic side of things because that's still sure. what I, I want to draw the turtles to look like. And then also um, my preference for the turtles, I guess, is probably just established with that. Oh, when I, so when I was a kid, I, I, um, I had seen the movie first and watched the cartoon first, then went back to Marauder mm-hmm. shortly later. And I was like, oh, man, this is Raph, like in the movie. Was that like when you first saw the movie, you were like, no, this should be Leo? Or was there that part of your brain? Like <laughs> <laughs> A little bit, yeah, but it didn't, it didn't upset me. Uh, it didn't upset me very much. It just felt like, cause it, I love that nineties movie. Oh, it's perfect. Uh, it's great. Yeah, it's yeah. fantastic. I still think it's the best of the movies and it's that scene on the rooftop of them versus the shredder is like one of the best fight scenes I've ever seen. And I love oh, yeah. the, the sort of like the bargain almost that shredder makes them aware of that, you know, it, with the loss of only one, if you still had your weapons, you could still have overpowered or had a chance of overpowering me. All that stuff was great. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> So I think I just accepted it <laughs> more than oh, anything. Yeah, sure. I was like, ah, yeah, they just changed it. Yeah. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Raphael now. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. You know, honestly, Freddie, that covers everything. I just want to thank you for, uh, for talking to me and, and your awesome work. Uh, for anybody who hasn't read all three volumes, read them. They're, they're beautifully drawn and just like, just the artwork on them is phenomenal. So just a huge <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> thanks. My pleasure. And thanks for having me on. And thanks for letting me uh, yammer on about some of the, the most fun experiences I've ever had. So, and, and the coolest jerk. characters I've ever drawn. Yeah. And what a little <laughs> jerk Robin is. So, <laughs> <laughs> that little crybaby. <laughs> thank you, Brian. You take care. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Brian. Thanks. Take care.